of the New Statesman. Uh, this afternoon's Fringe is on what Labour should demand from Brexit. Uh, a very pertinent question, not one which was debated in full on the conference floor, to the anger of some, but one which we will debate in full tonight. Um, to do so, we have a distinguished panel. Uh, we have Yvette Cooper, the chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, uh, an MP for 20 years and a former Shadow Home Secretary and former Chief Secretary <laughs> to the Treasury. We have Professor Anand Menon, the Director of the UK in a Changing Europe, Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London, and the author of a forthcoming book on Brexit and British politics. Um, Diane is going to join us later. The conference is overrunning uh, with, with, with Tom Watson delivering his speech at the moment, but we're delighted that so many of you have joined us, and uh, we're going to start with Yvette. Thank you. Thank you very much. Apologies for being late. I was held up in the conference hall. Can I just ask, because um, this is the second fringe meeting that I've done on um, Brexit, can I ask how many of you were at the first one that I did? Excellent, so I can say the same thing again. <laughs> um, so, look, I think, um, you know, the thing I feel really strongly about where we're at now is we know we're in, um, the Tory government is in a huge mess about the handling of Brexit. But actually, it is the previous Prime Minister, David Cameron, who I think will go down in history as the worst Prime Minister since the Second World War for what he has done and the way he has handled this. Not, in fact, the decision to hold a referendum in the first place, legitimate decision to do so, whether you agree with it or not, legitimate thing to decide to do. But to spend six years slagging Europe off and then suddenly think you can persuade everybody in six months to vote to stay in. To spend six years trying to promising no ifs, no buts, you're going to meet a net migration target that you have no chance of meeting, and then every time the figures go wrong, blaming Europe and blaming European migration, to spend your whole time with no strategy, no plan, and actually alienating all of the people you're going to have to do a deal with if you want to get your reform plan through to then put to the British people... At every single stage, he made irresponsible, careless decisions. He has ended up driving Britain out of Europe by accident. He never meant to have to happen. It is a shocking, shocking dereliction of duty, what he did. But prize for the second worst Prime Minister since the Second World War, in terms of what happens to the future of our country, on the current course we're on, is likely to go to Theresa May because we have clearly no strategy. The again alienating the very people that we need to do a deal with. Again, instead of having a plan that pulls together Remain voters and Leave voters with a positive vision for the whole country and a positive relationship with Europe, instead simply polarising people further ending up still with just 12 months to go before actually the plan <coughs> needs to be negotiated with other European countries, still no clarity about what it is the government wants. Of course, however, the person who could trump both of them for worst post-war Prime Minister, if he became Prime Minister, would be Boris Johnson. 
who has had absolutely no qualms just about lying <coughs> to the British people and lying repeatedly and also insulting the very people that we need to negotiate with with every trip around Europe he makes. And for which probably the only thing you can say in Boris Johnson's favour is he would at least be better than Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> and hope, there was something, actually, I did see this on Twitter, was something that somebody had said which said, and I apologise for repeating this, but people heard before, is it uh, line on Twitter which said, if I, you, the more I hear about David Cameron, Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg, the more I think that Eton School should be put into special measures. <laughs> <laughs> but look, the challenge for us is what do we do now? And I think that uh, what Keir Starmer said about having to be the grown-ups in the room is actually really important because this is about the future of our country now for generations to come. I think the first thing is we don't ignore the referendum result. Actually, we have to respect the referendum result because we lost consent to be in Europe in that referendum result. And Europe is about, the EU is about pooling of sovereignty. And we lost consent to pool sovereignty in that way. And you can't just claim you've got it when you've lost it. Sovereignty, uh, consent like that has to be earned and has to be built. Second thing, though, is we cannot go down the Tory track of this hard Brexit approach that they are doing. And when we know that what the Tories are doing is they're combining, it's this libertarian strand which says uh, just no regulations. The reason they don't want to be in the single market, the reason they wanted to pull out of the EU in the first place is actually because they just believe in no standards, no regulations, and that's why they want to pull back. With the imperialists, like Liam Fox, who actually apparently has put in his office in the International Trade Department a picture of Cecil Rhodes. And actually they talk in the department, the reports are that the department is talking about Brexit as being Empire 2.0. Which is a shocking approach to the kinds of actually negotiations that you need and their vision is one in which you turn your backs on Europe and our nearest trading neighbours in order to be somehow buccaneering across the high seas for these uh, sort of fantasy trade relationships which are all going to be in all of our interests but still have no standards in them and no rules uh, and still uh, somehow uh, strengthen our economy even though we turn our backs on our closest, our closest market uh, as well. And then, of course, the social conservative approach which says actually the most important priority is to meet that net migration target, even though it's a net migration target which includes students, which includes refugees. Personally, I think it is immoral to have a net migration target which includes refugees when we should be continuing our responsibility to stand up for those who've been persecuted across the world. So what then do we do and what do we argue for? I think the work that Keir has done to argue for a transition deal which involves staying in the single market, in the customs union, is very important because we know there are businesses, there are employers across the country for whom the idea that with 18 months suddenly there would be new trading relationships, new rules of the game, there's no way that they can do that in time. 
And I would add to the discussions that have been had about the transition agreement the really important thing that we have to also have a deal on security by March 2019 as well. And whether you do that through a new security treaty, whether you do that through extending existing arrangements, you have to have that continued membership of Europol, European arrest warrant, the ability to share vital policing criminal information because that's about our national security and that also has to be done by March of 2019 as well. But then we have the real challenge of what is the vision of what goes beyond the transition period and what is a Labour vision of a future relationship with Europe. And we know there are some people who want us to argue that the future vision should actually be turning away from Europe. I think very strongly that we, our vision has to be one of close partnership with Europe and that whatever the structural new relationship is, those values about internationalism but also of a partnership have to be part of that. Now, look, it's hard for the front benches and the, the shadow cabinet to set out detail of where we'll be because they've got to respond to whatever it is the government comes out with and the negotiations we know will roll on. And obviously, look, Labour's not in the heart of those negotiations. So I understand why actually, from their point of view, actually setting out the detail is harder. So I'll just tell you some of my views about what it is we should be aiming for. I think we should be trying to stay in the customs union because I just don't believe that any trade deal that we are going to do with Donald Trump is going to be better for our economy than the customs deal that we have with Europe at the moment. I think that secondly... Look, I would like us to be able to stay in the single market and also have reform to free movement. And I argued for this before, um, actually before the referendum, because I thought we should be arguing to stay in Europe and in the EU, but also within the EU should be arguing over time for reforms to free movement and to stay in the single market from the inside. I still think that's important. I actually think it's now harder to get that partnership of reforms to free movement and staying in the single market from outside than from inside because it alienates the other partners in the process. But I do also think that Europe itself has to reform and has plans to reform around the Eurozone, are going to be looking at greater integration, and other countries looking at different, more flexible arrangements uh, from outside the Eurozone as well. And as that changing relationship and pattern happens, and as Europe itself changes, then that gives more flexibility to try and say, look, this is the kind of relationship that Britain wants with Europe. But I have to be honest, that is going to be hard. And it is much, much harder if the process is done with belligerence and the process is done with tension and disagreement. But that's what I think we should be aiming for and aiming to try to achieve as part of that. And better, to, and also too, to realise that, look, we have a responsibility, I think, to, to see this as how you get a safe Brexit, because actually this feels a very dangerous time for our country, in which we could end up polarising in all sorts of different ways by the arguments that we have ourselves within this country, but also end up creating greater tensions and divisions and causing huge problems for our economy and for the future of our public services and our public finances by the way that we handle things with Europe as well. And it, equally, if we just ignore the politics and people's different views, that too could become divisive. So let's not pretend this is easy. It is going to be hard. And also, none of us are going to get everything that we want out of this. And actually, if the government 
was having that discussion and saying this is going to be hard and nobody is going to get what they want. But actually, if we all work together, if instead of trying to do this in a polarised way, through a minority view actually within the Tory party, never mind recognising that we now have a hung parliament because Theresa May did not get the mandate that she asked for in the general election, she shouldn't be carrying on as if the general election never happened. Actually, what the government should be doing is setting up a cross-party commission and actually having the negotiations that are going to affect all of us for many years to come by pulling parties together, by pulling Remain and Leave voters together, and by having a vision of the future, which is about bringing our country together, as well as having a long-term future partnership with Europe. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yvette. Chair, can I make a polite request, please, that we stop having flash photography during this meeting? Um, I've come here, I want to participate in this. I find it very distracting, very difficult to concentrate on what the speaker is saying and to make good sense of, of the argument. And I'd also like to feel like I can leave this meeting without worrying about having a meat brain once I've gone. Yes, no, that, I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, Anand. Thank you. Uh, so let me focus on the Labour Party and Brexit. The Labour Party is profoundly and deeply divided over Brexit. It's divided at the level of its voters because Labour has amongst its seats the most pro and most anti-Brexit constituencies in the country. And it's profoundly divided within its parliamentary party with the full spectrum going from Brexiters to people who want us to stay and still find some way of overturning the referendum. Because of this, Keir Starmer's attempt to spell out a clear Brexit position for the Labour Party has been a triumph of triangulation. Uh, it has been vague, it has been obfuscatory, and it has to be because there are so many different strands within the party. And, to be fair, generally when it comes to public policy, the aim of an opposition is to be able to attack whatever the government does while remaining deliciously vague over their own plans. And if you can get away with that, that is the perfect opposition strategy. <laughs> Dig beneath the surface, and the Labour position on Brexit is precisely the same as that of the government. Official Labour Party policy is to leave the single market and the customs union. Do not allow anyone to pull the wool over your eyes by pretending that transition means something different. Transition doesn't mean no cliff edge, it means a slightly later cliff edge. Transition, if you like, gives foreign firms slightly longer to decide whether they should go to Amsterdam or Paris. Mm. It doesn't stop the eventual economic shock that will come from leaving single market and customs union. So the debate about transition has been a distraction, but it is a distraction, because ultimately at the moment, the broad consensus between the two parties that swept up 80% of the vote in June is hard Brexit. Okay. What Labour should do on Brexit, and this is just advice from a friend, I have no particular sort of uh, flesh in this game. What this hinges on is whether you think Brexit is a normal issue of public policy or not. Okay? It seems to me that the leadership of the, of the Labour Party has made a tactical decision. And the tactical decision is, if the Conservative government brings about a hard Brexit which crashes the economy, that is a price worth paying for a Corbyn government. We watch them do it, we profit from it politically. I think that is a fundamental miscalculation of what a hard Brexit means. And I think it's a miscalculation simply because 
The things that John McDonnell were talking about, was talking about yesterday, even if they're possible at all, in the best of circumstances, would absolutely not be possible in circumstances where we left the single market and the customs union. The latest economic estimates about what that means for our economy is a 40% decrease in our trade with the European Union, a hit to our economy of in the order of 3% per annum. And under those conditions, you can't help the many, not the few. You can't fight inequality. You can't do all the things that Labour is pledged to doing. And actually, all the economic evidence suggests that those communities that will be worst hit by that will be those communities that are Labour communities. Uh, London, incidentally, is one of the places that will be least hit by a hard Brexit. So this, this poses a question. The question is, OK, how should, if Labour decided that they needed to do something different, how should they approach this? And I think there are two issues here. The first is we have to bear in mind the fact that public opinion has hardly shifted at all since the referendum last June. Okay? And you get the odd poll, like the one that the Independent made a song and dance over the other day that said 52-48 the other way, i.e. within the margin of error, so the poll said nothing, really. Uh, ultimately, public opinion remains pretty much where it has been. So there hasn't been buyer's remorse. There's been no swing against Brexit, and no one knows whether there will be a swing or not. But Labour needs to do two things. It needs to get its messaging right. Labour MPs never should say the word Brexit, they should say Tory Brexit to illustrate the fact that there are different ways of doing this and the way this government is doing this is the way that will be most harmful to jobs, to investment and to the economy as a whole. And secondly, someone in a Labour spin room somewhere has to come up with the equivalent of fixing the roof when the sun was shining, which was the metaphor the Tories used to nail the financial crisis on the Labour Party. Labour must find a narrative and a slogan to nail the Conservatives with the economic impact of Brexit, and they need to do it now. Because otherwise, the narrative will change, and the Tory Brexiters will say, actually, China's having a bit of a slump at the moment, that's why the economy's not working. It needs to be done now, it needs to be done clearly, and it needs to be done in a way that people can easily grasp. The second thing is, the danger at the moment for me is that there are loads of Labour MPs who will say to you in private, oh my God, this is a nightmare, we should stop this happening. But I'm a bit worried because I've got a Leave constituency and public opinion is against me. We're creating a vicious circle. Public opinion isn't moving because no one's leading it. No one's leading it because public opinion isn't moving. It seems to me that ultimately if MPs are going to do their duty by their constituents and stick to Labour values, they need to start sticking their head above the parapet and arguing what they believe. We need to find a way to avoid the process Mrs May has set us out upon. And to do that, we're going to argue the case. And actually, we can have a debate about whether free movement is a price worth paying to keep our economy intact or not. But it is something we should debate. And we should be open to the possibility that public opinion might actually respond to argument and might change over the next 12 months. I'm not saying it will. And if, if the arguing is done badly, it won't. But it seems to me at the moment, hiding behind the cover of we're listening to the referendum and we don't want to divide the party is doing the country and the party a disservice. Thank you, Anand. So, Yvette, if we exclude the transitional period, do you agree that Labour's policy is identical to the Conservatives? Um, I don't, because I think that there is nobody in the Labour Party who uh, has any sympathy with the kind of Liam Fox approach to the world, and that kind of approach which is about saying that you can just replace 
all of your trading relationships with Europe, with a kind of free market, free um, uh, free trade, uh, kind of uh, almost like you know, low regulation, deregulatory set of uh, trading relationships with a whole series of other countries, basically that we used to have empire relationships with, which is fundamentally what he thinks. So I think there is a huge gap between that. I think that within the Conservative Party there is also a kind of relaxed approach to... Uh, to having no deal at all and to see that not just as part of the negotiating process but actually there's a chunk of the Tory party that thinks actually that is the right outcome and that is what they want as well and I don't think there's anybody in the Labour Party that thinks that but, you know you, know, you have to obviously ask Diane and, and Keir the details in terms of the front bench um, thinking but I think there is a very big difference and I do think um, that we should also be uh, I'm now like to see us actually championing the idea now of being into the customs union because I think we could build a consensus now on staying in the customs union or after you know if you can't but I actually like the idea of actually staying in the customs union um, as something that you could start to build a consensus on even at this stage um, and get actually people even who want to strongly wanted to leave the EU would still actually very quickly think that actually the customs union, particularly for our manufacturing, is immensely important. Mm-hmm. Do you think a second referendum is, is an option that should be kept on the table? I think the problem with talking about second referendum is people actually, what they think you're saying is, I want to rerun the first referendum. <laughs> and... The, the, the problem with that is that what you in the end, if you get into that discussion, what you do is just harden views about where we're at because it just sounds like, it actually sounds very un-British. It's like, oh, we didn't like the result and so we just want to do it again. And I also remember, what was the, was the, um, um, that the, uh, is it the Winchester um, by-election? It was many years ago where there was a Tory MP who didn't object to the result and ended up getting trounced by the head. They had to rerun the election of a particular constituency and he ended up being trounced the second time just because it looked like, as far as the local communities were concerned, it just looked like he hadn't accepted the results. So I do think when you're dealing with these sorts of constitutional consent things, it's true that, ch- that views can change over time, but if you simply look like actually you are not listening to what people just said, then I think you actually make it harder to have an honest debate. Mm. Uh, no, and I think many in this room would... would have some sympathy with the argument that Labour should be taking a tougher line against the government's version of of Brexit in the national interest. But of course, politics is politics. Mm -hmm. Labour's in a difficult position. I think the 20, most of the 20 most remain constituencies are held by Labour and most of the 20 most leave constituencies are held by Labour. In the 1990s, when the Tories were similarly divided over (laughs) Europe, Labour profited quite handsomely by maintaining an ambiguous position. Mm -hmm. Some would say, surely what Labour should do is let the Conservatives own this mess and then hope that they can clean it up when they get back into government. Okay, let me say several things back to that. Uh, Firstly, Brexit is different to the debates we had in the 1990s over the European Union. Uh, Secondly, it is... I think what Labour need to do at first is criticise the way that the Conservative Party is doing Brexit. I mean, that's the first argument, isn't it? There are ways of doing this, and they're choosing a way that is going to shatter the economy. Uh, And every economic forecast about the economic impact of Brexit 
concurs on that. I kind of agree with Yvette about a second referendum. I think it has to, you know, if we end up having a second referendum under the wrong circumstances, we're going to end up in a kind of hideous political groundhog day where we might vote 51-49 to remain in second time around and all of a sudden we're back in 2011 and Nigel and Aaron are back with UKIP in full force getting 35% in opinion polls, the Tory party's divided and we just do it all again because the British people aren't haven't been convinced, public opinion hasn't moved, and that would be the worst of all outcomes because in the process we'd screw up the European Union because we wouldn't be able to do anything in Europe either. So we need to be careful. I mean, I don't think the Labour Party should come out and talk in terms of a second referendum now, but I think Labour need to be clearly pointing out the economic implications of the policies being pursued by the government when it comes to Brexit at the moment. Can I add a couple of things about Liam Fox and, and Customs Union? I think they're absolutely right. Labour doesn't have a Liam Fox. Uh, who does? Uh, but, but, but the Labour equivalent, the Labour equivalent of Liam Fox is, is uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Andrew Marr saying wrongly that EU state aid and competition laws would prevent the Labour Party from uh, putting its manifesto into effect. It wouldn't. There is nothing in the Labour manifesto this year that is contradictory to the, t the laws of the European Union. That's just a sort of 1970s socialist shibboleth that needs to be shot down because it's simply not true. And on the customs union, I buy your point, it would be easier to stay in the customs union than the single market. We're a services economy, though. And actually, in terms of the economic impact of staying in the customs union, it would be important for some key industries, sure. But for all those services, including financial services on which this economy depends, it would make not the slightest bit of difference. We would be outside the market. Many regards the biggest reason for the Brexit vote um, as public unhappiness with, with the level of immigration and also the lack of control over it. Yvette, what future immigration system or free movement system do you think would satisfy that public grievance? So we're doing um, a select committee inquiry into um, immigration at the moment, which will be looking at uh, what the different options might be around uh, post-Brexit migration, but also we've been looking at what it takes to build a consensus on immigration, because the truth is that immigration has been dividing our country and polarising our country and polarising the debate for too long. And I've done public meetings all over the country, um, and I think there is actually more consensus than people think, and uh, actually there's a sort of tendency to characterise this debate as people either wanting um, no restrictions and open borders, or alternatively wanting uh, no immigration at all, and actually that's just not right. And most people, particularly when you get into a discussion about different kinds of migration, actually there tends to be um, actually a lot more consensus and most people think you know what immigration is actually important for Britain and we need it we've been a really important part of our history but it's also going to be a really important part of our future but they want to see things controlled and managed so that the system is fair and so then you get into a discussion about what kinds of controls and what kinds of management actually is it that people want to see and what are the different concerns and anxieties people want to see plus also what is it that has um uh, the debate around integration uh, and the issues around uh, exploitation and changes in the labour market and so on as well. So because we're doing, I'm not going to preempt what that report obviously will uh, be looking at, but says part of it, what we've had is um, uh, the British Future has been doing these citizens' juries all over the country exactly to establish that. So I think there are ways of 
having to being able to combine some measures that can actually deal with some of the challenges around free movement at the same time as making sure that we get the benefits of migration both in terms of skills in terms of the economy and in terms of our communities as well and if you think about the eurozone look the eurozone needs free movement within it in order to function because they need if they have a shock in one part of the eurozone they can't change the interest rates from different parts of the eurozone so they need people for example in spain to be able to move to other countries in order to get jobs they need that within the eurozone we're outside the eurozone for other countries outside the eurozone you don't need the same kinds of rules around free movement as you do if you are inside the free the eurozone that's why I think there is potential, if all of these relationships are changing, start to look at what different kinds of relationships might be that might end up being able to address some of those issues. But look, this is truth is, this is an early stage in that process. And I still think that the point about the single market membership is immensely important. And it is immensely important to so many businesses and industry right across the country, to the relationships that they already have in the process. And that's why I think, look, although this is hard, what Labour should be saying is, look, single market membership is really important. We do think there are some reforms that are needed to free movement, but we also think single market membership is really important. And actually, our aim would be to try and pull those two things together, even though we know it is hard. And let's be not be dishonest about this. It is hard, but actually that is what we should be trying to achieve with our European partners. Anand, every so often the British media get quite excited at the thought that the EU might come back with a new offer on immigration which uh, persuades the British government either to, to stay in the single market or, or perhaps offers a route to, to stay in the EU altogether. Emmanuel Macron has said the, the door is potentially open. Um, do you think that's a, a feasible outcome? Well, I mean, Yvette said two very, very important things here, I think. One is there is no economic necessity to have free movement. It's not an economic logic of the single market. It might be an economic logic of the Eurozone. And actually, the other thing that's important to say is we suffered because we, were, we became an employer of last resort for a single currency we weren't part of. I mean, that's why a number of EU immigrants from Southern Europe went up massively, is that we were a labour market that had jobs and we attracted all those people. And actually, it was their currency that was suffering, but we had the people coming here. Now, you can look at that how you want, but it was an unfortunate thing to happen just before a referendum because it had an impact on public opinion. The EU, I think, isn't going to give us a special... I mean, well, let me say two things. Firstly, we don't know, because when Theresa May stood up and said, I don't want to be in the single market, it meant that she sidelined all that debate about a possible mm. reform of the system. And that is something we're yet to have, and that is something that the opposition needs to push her towards. Go and talk to them and see what's on the table, because there might be ways of limiting free movement that are consistent with something that looks like single market membership. I doubt it, and I doubt it for the simple reason that, ultimately... Every single parliament in Europe is going to have to approve the trade deal we end up with. And I find it hard to imagine a scenario where the Polish Prime Minister stands in front of the Polish Parliament and says, I've got this deal here, it means the British have everything they want, but none of us can go and work there anymore. Will you approve it? I suspect they'll probably say, uh, no. So there will be political problems, I think. It's, you know, when it gets to politics, it gets visceral, as we know all too well. But just a couple of final things about immigration. One... Again, I think it is worth being honest about this and saying that reducing immigration will come at an economic cost. 
it will add to the economic uh, damage caused by Brexit because if we cut off, uh, if we stop these people coming over here, it will, it, will, it will not just affect the areas where they work, it will affect the tax take and so on. Immigration from the European Union has been a net positive for the British economy. That isn't to say that parts of the country haven't been badly hit by massive concentrations of immigration. It's always seemed to me, however, that the way to deal with that was to use some of the net profit from the taxes they paid to build more hospitals and schools in those areas. Uh, but anyway, the second thing I would say is when the government talks about control, it is conning you. Under any new system we bring in to control migration from the European Union, the control will not be exercised at our borders, as we heard so much about during the referendum, but <coughs> landlords and employers will be told, here is a new 2,000-page manual of immigration laws, you will implement it, and if you are found not to, we will fine you £20,000. So actually, control of immigration is red tape for business. Do not be fooled into thinking that we're going to have some snazzy new system at the frontier that is going to implement whatever measures the government puts into place. Um, I'm going to open it up to you now, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll take questions in groups of three. Uh, yes, the uh, man with the, uh, the beard. Um, it has been suggested that... Sorry, could you speak up a bit? It has been suggested that EFTA might offer a general card. Could you comment on that? Thank you. <laughs> yes, the yes. gentleman there. Uh, I, um, I would like to widen the discussion <coughs> slightly and ask the question. I think the Dr. Cooper mentioned imperial thinking on the part of the Conservative Party. I would like to ask what the panel believe that the Labour Party's answer is to the phrase Global Britain. <laughs> Thank you. And the gentleman there. Um, I found that the uh, EU referendum, as, as Anna mentioned, exposed quite a big divide between two key factions of the Labour Party centred on whether you're small or socially conservative or not and um, in my previous role I felt that particularly um, engaging often with um, Labour supporters in the North of England compared to um, the ones in my CLP in um, Battersea and I felt like on no issue more than immigration this was exposed and I want to know forgetting the economic side of this debate what does Labour do to address the social gap that's um, developing in this area, and how do we start to develop opinion so that immigration is something seen as being uh, a, a policy we should celebrate, and about diversity, and about, you know, yes, economic benefit, but also just about, you know, opening your networks, having a wider, a more um, open-minded view of the world. Yvette, do you want to respond to that last one? Yeah, so I think um, there is a gap there's been a gap across the country between the Remain vote and the Leave vote that um, actually I think it's tended to often also be fit around a city-town yeah. gap. So cities more likely to vote to Remain, towns more likely to vote to Leave. And 
Look, there's one approach which says, look, this is a cultural gap between um, communities that you are more likely to have a kind of liberal uh, kind of cities, liberal values in cities, communitarian values in towns, that people living in cities more likely to value things like opportunity and freedom, in towns more likely to value things like community and solidarity and local solidarity, that, um, that this is a divide between cities and towns, but it's also a divide actually within the Labour movement because we have always drawn on both liberal and communitarian traditions as part of our socialism. So we've always drawn together uh, exactly those liberal values around freedom and opportunity and also the values around community and solidarity. And what they've often been united by is a sense of economic injustice and wanting to see support for public services or support for new jobs for everybody and that those things unite those different sets of approaches. But Brexit is something that divides people. Now, I would just add to that, however, I don't think this is just a cultural thing and this is an issue just about values. I actually think that there is a deeper gap between cities and towns where actually the new jobs in the new economies have been predominantly being created in cities, whereas all the old jobs have been going from towns. And you've seen, particularly in our post-industrial towns, we've seen a sort of sense of growth and you know, a lot of towns being turned, if they've got big cities nearby, they're being turned into commuter towns when they weren't previously, but without the, commu- the commuter infrastructure and without the transport networks in order to support that. The, you've seen the towns also, I think, harder hit by austerity. So not necessarily in terms of actual the total amount of money, but if you have public services being pulled right back, they often disappear completely from the town. So the towns lose their swimming pools completely, or their courts, or their A&E services, because they shrink back to the cities, to where the bigger population centres are. And you've seen, obviously, retail as well. Online and Amazon and out-of-town shopping centres hit our town centres harder and see our cities still actually have retail at the heart of big regeneration programs. So I think there is a genuine economic gap. And then, of course, the Tory devolution approach puts power, more power in the hands of cities, but actually towns have not got more control over their communities. So there is little wonder that take-back control was a very powerful message to towns. Regardless of what you think about single markets, regardless of what you think about free movement, the take-back control message for a lot of towns and communities that feel like, my towns have been changing around us and we've got no control over it at all. And so I think there was a really powerful message there. And this is a challenge to Labour because the Tories have presided over this, but actually a lot of towns don't see us as the answer. A lot of cities do. We had a really big, great result in a lot of our cities and university towns, but actually some of our towns, I mean, obviously Mansfield and Ashfield, places in the East Midlands are the obvious examples of it, were much harder. And so if you don't address that kind of deeper underlying divide and us have a a sort of strong approach to what we do for towns, then you're never going to address actually the deeper Brexit divide between leave leave and remain. And if there's anybody here that lives in towns, we are setting up a new Labour Towns Network for councillors, for MPs and so on who represent town constituencies because I think we need a really strong voice for towns. That It's not about feeling left behind, that is too much of a caricature. It's actually towns that have had a bad deal. Thank you, Yvette. And as you have seen, ladies and gentlemen, we have now been joined by Diane Abbott, the Shadow Home Secretary. Currently celebrating her 30th year as the MP for Hackney North and Stoke Newington. 
And um, Diane, your thoughts on what Labour should demand from Brexit? Um, thank you very much. I'm really sorry. The uh, Tom Watson speech went on a bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't leave until the end of that. It was rude, really. Um, the first thing to say is that the Labour Party respects the referendum vote. A lot of toing and throwing, and a lot of people that seem to think that the Labour Party should put to one side the, the referendum vote. We're not prepared to do that. The second thing to say is, above all, what the Labour Party wants from Brexit is a Brexit which is actually, which will actually help the economy. A jobs Brexit is the phrase we use. Whereas the Tories are engaged in a very doctrinaire Brexit negotiation. Before the summer, I went to Brussels with Sir Keir Starmer and Jeremy to meet with Barnier. Barnier had asked to meet the Labour Party. And Barnier was extremely clear. He said that by October, there had to be substantive progress in, on three issues. One is the money that the government is going to pay. The other was the position of EU citizens. And the third was the Northern Ireland border. And Barnier was absolutely clear that unless there is substantive progress on those three issues, we will not be going on to discussions about trade. Now, initially, David Davis tried to pretend you could do that and trace simultaneously. The EU is very clear. So I think there's a danger or the prospect of this government's Brexit negotiations running into the sand. And there is a problem with the debate on Brexit on this side of the channel, which is that we behave as if we only have to say ABC and the 27 EU countries will give it to us. But the 27 EU countries have views of their own. And having, as they see it, made concessions to Britain down the years, um, it's almost like they're concessioned out. And they're clear on the issues that need to be resolved before you can talk about um, trade. So I, you know, what I think about Brexit and the Tories is for those of you who, like me, read history at university, this is a rerun of the repeal of the Corn Laws. The repeal of the Corn Laws was this huge Tory schism between free marketeers and protectionists, and it kept the Tories out of power for a generation. And I believe Brexit for the Tories... Yeah, exactly, good news. Um, I believe that, 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 that Brexit, because it touches on what for the Conservative Party are viscerally divisive themes, could, as I say, keep them out of power. Everybody says, oh, you know, Tories don't want a general election. No, they don't want a general election. Of course they don't. But there is a tide in the affairs of men. On the one hand, there is the visceral nature of the divide between the free marketeers and... Uh, the protectionists. On the other hand, there are individuals in the Tory party. Um, two names come to mind. Bill Cash, 
and John Redwood, who under major, and I was an MP under major, did their very best to crash their party, and lo and behold, the self-same people are playing the self-same games under Theresa May. And what you know about these people is they put their Euro obsessions above the, the good of the country and the good of their party. But let me just say one thing, because you've heard ooh, wonderful speakers, and it's about immigration, and it's about freedom of movement. And let me say this. I, as Home Secretary, have not closed my mind to modifications in the application of freedom of movement, which would make it closer to the practice in other European countries. So if you're in Belgium, for instance, you come in, you've got a job, you lose your job, you've got three months, then you have to go. I've not closed my mind to modifications, but you know what I am emphatic about? I will not make concessions to the anti-immigrant narrative which underlies so much of the debate on freedom of movement. Um, and as I say, you, you could modify, um, could modify freedom of movement, but for the Labour Party to get caught up in this anti-immigrant narrative is a dead end for the party. We will never outbid the rights of the party and the remnants of UKIP on immigration, and we should not try. We need a fair rules. We need reasonable management. We need to deal with actual ills, but to be swept up in this notion that only if we moved right on immigration, that and only that would help us to save some of our seats in the deindustrialised North, I think that's wrong. I think the collapse of our vote in places like Mansfield is much more complicated than concerns about immigration. And so, yes, to addressing practical labour market issues, but no to thinking we can outbid the remnants of UKIP on this issue. And so my final point, because I know I've only got three minutes, is this. Whatever happens with Brexit and the negotiations, we are going to have to look at our immigration system as a whole. And the thing I would be cautious about is ending up with an immigration system out with of the EU treaties that we signed, because currently the system we have, we signed a treaty and, and so on. The thing I would be cautious about is ending up with an immigration system where we're not bound by treaty obligations, let's just say, and you actually have one set of immigration rules for EU nationals and another set completely different system and rules for non-EU nationals. And you say to me, well, Diane, what's the problem with that? Because de facto, you would have one set of rules and immigration practice for white migrants and another set of rules and practice for non-white migrants. And it can come as no surprise to this audience that so long as I'm Labour's Home Secretary, Shadow Home Secretary and soon to be Home Secretary, <laughs> that is not a road we're going down. What we should be doing, rather than levelling down, you know, I'm not trying to prejudge what will happen, you know, after the transition period and so on, but what we should be doing is rather than levelling down the way we treat 
EU nationals to the, the chaos and unfairness and Kafkaesque um, mess that is the current immigration system, we should be looking at an overhaul of immigration as a whole, which, as I said, is about fair rules and reasonable management. Thank you. Thank you very much, Diane. And I'm going to take some more questions from you now, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the um, gentleman in the corner there. Going down the Esther road, yes. going down the road, not add more regulation exporters and importers that have even more regulations. Thank you. Excuse me, can I remind you, Chair, that there were some other questions. Yes, yeah, yes, I'll go. Still in the air. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, actually, why don't we, why don't we turn to those now? Um, it's another question about EFTA. Anad, is EFTA a potential get-out-of-jail-free card? Well, if we get into the European economic area, we get to enjoy the benefits of the single market. We don't necessarily get to enjoy the customs union, so it's not exactly where we are now. Uh, there are problems with it. The problems are that we'll have to accept some form of free movement, and if you think that's a political problem, then that's an issue. And the second thing is you will be de facto in a position where you are obeying European Union laws over which you have no say. Uh, the Norwegians call it fax diplomacy. They wait by the fax machine, the laws come from Brussels, they apply them at home. It strikes me as curious if we have a referendum which sort of went around the notion of control quite as much as ours did to end up in a situation where we have essentially the same situation but less control. Uh, I think that might be politically problematic. But in an economic sense... Uh, and certainly people are talking about it for that transitional period, but again, I will say transition is less important than what comes afterwards. In an economic sense, that model would uh, avoid some of the pain of uh, a hard Brexit. Do you want to talk about values, global Britain and all that as well at the same time? Or yes. Not, I'm happy not yes, to. Well, actually, why don't we, Yvette, your thoughts. What's, we know what global Britain means to, to the Conservatives and, and the imperial nostalgia around that. What should Labour's global Britain be? Well, I think we've always had internationalism actually at the heart of the party. It's quite interesting if you look at the, the you know the history of the Labour Party. Could easily have become uh, an inward-looking sort of protectionist party, but actually never did. The Labour Party always had a sort of internationalism at the heart of our values and sense of international solidarity at the heart of our values from our very founding. And I think it's really important um, that um, we maintain that. And I think it is for me. It's about actually recognising that. That in a world where you have these big, big trading blocks, really, the US, uh, China, Europe, that in an, and where so many things now, so many of the big, huge global, the, the big, huge companies that dominate our lives are now global giants. If you want to deal with the problem of issues from Amazon or from Google or all of those sorts of things, then just trying to act as one country alone, whether you're talking about taxation or uh, proper corporate behaviour or uh, employment, any of those things become very hard for any one country to deal with on their own. 
and actually finding, as uh, somebody put it to me, it's very hard to become a big, a big company on a small island if you need bigger markets in the global economy as well. So in all of those circumstances, actually, economically, we need the partnerships, not just with Europe, but right across the globe. But we also need standards and we need values in those relationships as well. We need environmental standards, we need employment standards, we need rights for people, uh, for citizens as part of that. And that's why the huge value of our relationship with Europe is that you can have both those trading relationships and sets of standards that you agree and sets of safeguards that you agree as well. So, I think the, the, you know, the real challenge is if you want to have standards, if you want to global level at uh, regional or kind of within a region, uh, then you have to have partnerships in place. You cannot just operate as a country on your own, the kind of isolated buccaneering, sailing the high seas uh, that Boris Johnson and Liam Fox seem to envisage. It all comes down to partnership, solidarity, those are at the heart of the Labour Party. I always like to avoid all-male panels and also all-male questioners. So I wanted to ask, is, is there a woman who would like to ask a question? Anyone? Yes. Um, hi, thanks. Um, my question is about the time scale of this. Um, obviously, clock is ticking. I think we've heard a lot about that over this weekend and this week. Um, what can we do to make sure if there ends up being an election surrounding the final deal or at some point in the next couple of years that the legislative preparation is really, really solid and that the civil service has the capacity to get things done? Thank you. And I'll take two more. Uh, yes, the gentleman there. And it's just, um, sort of, are all the sort of concessions we've had from the European Union over the years. How can we now go into negotiations and sort of ask for single market membership and, custom, and to be part of the customs union without being sort of laughed at? Then sort of the reaction being, you've had all this stuff over the years and you're asking for more. So how can we go into this without sort of being ridiculed for asking for more than we kind of deserve? Thank you. And one more. Yes, take the gentleman at the front. I'm Mark English. I work for the I work for the European Commission, but I'm just asking this in a, in a personal capacity. Um, Yvette Cooper said it was very hard to dispute that the referendum result means that consent has been lost for falling sovereignty. But in the modern world, I think most informed people would agree you can't get by without doing that. So how do you square that circle? How do you get that consent back? Even for the customs union, you need it. And secondly, on free movement. I think it's important to point out that you need the consent of the rest of the European Union, not the elites, but the voters, who support it by a massive majority, not just in the East, but in Germany, in Italy, in France, Spain, pretty much across the EU. How are you going to persuade them to accept changes to something that they like? Thank you. Yvette, do you want to respond to those two points? Yeah. Um, so, I think, uh, look, I mean, I said at the beginning, I think this is really hard. And I think it would have been, it would always have been hard because you're talking about significant changes to the way the EU operates 
But I think it was worth trying to make those changes from within had we stayed in, which is obviously what I and many others and everybody probably in this room was passionately arguing for in the referendum. But the reason I think that changes were needed within Europe is, look, we, we had a different relationship already because outside the Eurozone, outside the Schengen Zone, of course we had different relationship on different things. And therefore, to be honest, one of the things, one of the big mistakes that I think pro-Europeans made in the, the 90s and noughties was resisting the idea of a sort of multivariable Europe and actually being almost very kind of anxious and allergic to the idea that you could have multi-speeds almost and multi, you know, different relationships within Europe and there's kind of sense that actually, no, no, we've all got to be the same and we've all got to have the same relationship and Britain's got to be at the heart of it. Actually, given that that was not the result of history, geography, different economic circumstances and so on, that wasn't the right relationship for us, but actually we can still have a strong relationship, even if it's different from the relationship that France and Germany want with each other. And that is fair enough. So I think the, um, uh, the challenge is now, from where we're at now, can we get back into that sensible and more thoughtful discussion because Europe itself is going to have to change. And I accept the, the point, I think it was Mark, was it, who made that about that, um, you know, look, you, you do need consent across Europe if you're going to have any of these changes, and Europe is going to have to go through a very complicated process of thinking about what relationships it wants. And, you know, I'm very clear, within the Eurozone, they will need greater integration to make the Eurozone work. I am very glad we did not go into the Eurozone because I don't think the Eurozone really makes sense as a project. I think they have far too many countries in it and they shouldn't have started here. And that was the view I took at the time when they set it up in the first place. But now that they've got it, they have got to make it work and it's in our interest for them to make it work as well. But that means they have to change their approach within the Eurozone. They have to do more to support countries like Greece and Italy but they also need greater integration in order to do so, and they need free movement as part of that. But actually, for the other countries outside the Eurozone, they don't need that as a fundamental principle of economics. They don't need to have those same relationships. You could have all, all kinds of different relationships that would work. But in order for us to argue for that, and for ours being one of many different, slightly different relationships, fundamentally with the Eurozone, you have to have goodwill. And our real problem at the moment is we have a government that has ripped up any goodwill, that has ripped up any sense of a constructive, positive vision of what Europe might look like, what Britain's relationship might, uh, with Europe might look like. But, you know, if you want me to kind of say, what do I think we should be trying to do now? That feels to me still to be a prize worth trying to rebuild. Because the problem I have kind of listened to all of this sort of debate, you know, so far everybody can tell us why everything is terrible. And it's all awful, and nothing we do is going to work, and nothing we do is going to make any difference at all. But equally, we can't change public opinion either, because that's... Uh, you know, so there's like, you know, we might as well just go all go and hide for 10 years and then just hope for the best when we come out again. And so this, this is my kind of sense of here's what constructively we could be trying to do. We could be trying to get the government to shift off this hard Brexit plan to be more consensual, to try and go for a more cross-party approach, and that our approach with Europe should be almost starting from first principles and saying, we know this is going to take time, and you need to do your reforms, and we want to support your reforms, rather than just a kind of 
an approach that is just obsessed with ourselves and almost forgets the fact that they have got debates going on between the 27 different countries. If David Cameron had done this from the first place and actually understood that there is a sort of reform and debate process within Europe and there's a positive argument to have about the future of Europe, then actually we might have got the reforms that we needed before the referendum that might have allowed us to win the referendum in the first place. Thank you, Yvette. Anand, do you want to respond to the question on the timing and whether the civil service has the capacity to cope with Brexit? And also the cake and eat it point, and won't we just be ridiculed if we come back saying, actually, we, we think the single market and the customs union would be quite nice to have. Thanks very much. Well, look, on, on that question first, I think, you know, yes, there were a whole load of people in the other EU member states who sort of looked at us disbelievingly and said, you've got an opt-out of the Eurozone, you've got an opt-out of Schengen, you've got a bleeding budget rebate, and you're complaining. <laughs> uh, so there was an element of that. But nevertheless, we are... We survive in an interdependent relationship with our European partners, interdependent on, on economics, interdependent on security. Uh, we both benefit from cooperating, okay? I think, therefore, they're wise enough, and, and it varies by government. If you're the Irish Republic, your economy is massively exposed to the implications of uh, Brexit. If you're Croatia, far less so, okay? So they have differential interests. They want a deal that keeps trade and cooperation going as long as possible. But I think the political imperative, and the political imperative particularly in states where you have strong Eurosceptic challenger parties, so maybe Germany now, certainly France, certainly the Netherlands, non-membership can't look as attractive as membership. I mean, that's the bottom line, for very good political reasons. You can call that punishment, you can call it what it wants. But President Macron can't afford to sign a deal with us in 2021, just before the next presidential election that are now either the far left or the far right, and they're both Eurosceptic, remember, to turn around and say, that looks nice, we could do that. So I think that is, that is the political imperative they face. On uh, the timescale, my God, yes, it's tight. Uh, because if you think about it, ultimately, I mean, it depends what sort of Brexit we get. But let's just assume for the moment we get the Brexit the government seems intent on. So we leave the single market and we leave the customs union. We essentially have to redesign our political economy in the next four to five years. And that means trivial stuff like parking at Dover, because you'll have massive queues. Unless you want to do operations stack 365 days a year, lorries are going to have to park up. You need to train up customs officials. You need to have regulations in place. You need to have regulatory agencies in place to replace the EU institutions that used to do that job. The, the, the task is gargantuan. And the civil service has numbers that are lower than at any time since 1945 because of successive cuts. So it's a massive task. I think we've got a fantastic civil service. I think they're being rather badly led at the moment. But our civil service has actually done a year of very, very good... It annoys me when that... You know, I don't know if you all remember... I imagine there are some people less obsessed with Brexit than me, so you might have missed it. There was a photo of David Davis at the negotiations with Michel Barnier when David Davis had no papers in front of him. And the newspapers ran with the story, the Brits are totally unprepared. That's just nonsense. The civil service has done a whole load of preparatory work about Brexit. If you go to the Department of Business and talk to them about the work they've done on supply chains and the exposure of the British economy to leaving the customs union or the single market is staggering. You can say, well, it's a shame they didn't do that before the referendum, so we knew it then, sure. But actually... A lot of work has been done, but it's going to be tight. It's going to be difficult. And when we do it, there are going to be cock-ups because 
you know, if you talk to people in the House of Commons, if you talk to people in the office of the Leader of the House, they'll say, oh my God, we've just realised there's another law we need to pass because the EU used to do this for us. Uh, so things will go wrong. It's going to be very difficult, very complex, and there is no way we can do it before March 2019. So we need transition, both to negotiate the deal and to start implementing a new system. Thank you, Anand. That is all we have time for. Thank you for your, all your questions, and I expect we'll be having fringe events on Brexit for at least the next decade. So <laughs> I hope you'll join us again. <laughs>